Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. The raw and revealing new film, Caroline Flack, Her Life and Death. The Oscar-nominated My Octopus Teacher. Sir David Attenborough's latest hit series and what the UK TV comedy team are looking for right now. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby and welcome to the 50th episode of Telecast. On this week's show, my guests are Off the Fences' Bo Stamire, Humblebee Films' Stephen Dunleavy and Dob Friedman from Curious Films. Plus, UK TV's Pete Thornton is in Commissioner's Corner. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. My first guests on this week's show are Off the Fences CEO, Bo Stamire, and Humblebee Films founder and managing director, Stephen Dunleavy. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Hello. Great to have you both on our 50th episode. (laughs) (laughs) Great to have you on this special commemorative episode. Stephen, coming to you first, Humblebee Films. Tell us a little bit about Humblebee Films. Well, we're uh, 10 years old, so this is your 50th um, edition. We're we're celebrating 10 years now, and we're based in Bristol, and uh, we primarily make natural history films, um, like many indies in Bristol, of course. And I founded it, um, well, just myself and our head of production, uh, Lisa Waters, um, on the basis of a a single film um, 10 years ago, Natural World, about the Komodo dragon uh, and the discovery of venom in the Komodo dragon, which was a very exciting discovery at the time. Uh, And that dipped our toe into, into the indie world, and we've kind of gone from there, really. Um, and in the last few years, uh, have been expanding quite quite rapidly, which is which is great news for us and for the company and for all those who work for us. We pride ourselves on trying to do natural history. You know, we do blue chip natural history, but we're we're not the sort of company that will pitch necessarily straightforward habitat based ideas. We try and do cross genre. We try and look at things in a different way. So we try and introduce science or history into what we do. And we try and offer, I suppose, a slightly different perspective on the natural world in that way. 
Um, but now, very excited that we have a, a new creative director, Stephen McQuillan, who is uh, leading us into new territories. As we hit our 10th year, we're looking at uh, other areas of, of the factual world, really, and he brings him, with him great experience in that space. So it's a very exciting time for us. Yeah, and you've recently had fantastic success with Attenborough's Life in Colour, of course, which uh, recently played out on BBC One in the UK. It's currently on iPlayer and coming to Netflix around the world as well. I take it you've been working with National Treasure, in fact, global treasure, Sir David Attenborough, for a few years now. Yes, yes. I, well, I, I first met David when I was at the BBC Natural History Unit, uh, and I was there for about 15 years, and I worked on a series called Life in the Undergrowth with him. Um, but I left soon after. I wanted to freelance initially and then set up my own indie. Um, but we, we got on really well, and I've always enjoyed work with him, and I think he's always enjoyed working with me. So we've maintained a, a working relationship uh, you know, as, as an independent um, production company. And I think it's because we offer this different avenue for him to look at the natural world slightly different to, to some of the, the mainstream broadcasters. And I, I think it was within our, our second year as uh, an independent, we pitched an idea to him called Natural Curiosities, which actually... I know you have um, a guest from UK TV on later on today, um, but we, we actually uh, wanted to pitch it towards UK TV as a series of shorts, um, in fact, 10 minute shorts. Uh, and we went to see UK TV with the idea and, they, and uh, the commissioning editor was Catherine Catton, who's now BBC Factual Commissioning. And she fell in love with the idea and thought it was fantastic because it was a look at the history of how we discovered things in natural history and looking at some of the curiosities like a platypus or you know, and our understanding and how that's evolved and some of the most ridiculous explanations of, of these creatures in the past um, because they baffled science. And she immediately fell in love with it. So this is not 10 minutes, this is going to be half hours. So we, we did a five-part series with him and, and literally as we hit the edit uh, suites with that five parts, they commissioned another 10 parts and then it went on for four seasons. So it, I, I loved making that, that series and it was the first returnable format i suppose that we had um and i know david really enjoyed it because it, it it's tapped into a part of his interest in the history of discovery that uh, that he hadn't really touched on before so it was very exciting so well let's take a short listen to a clip from attenborough's life in color the natural world is full of colors that attract attention. Colours that blend beautifully with their background. And colours that create extraordinary displays. There are few animals more brilliantly coloured than these scarlet macaws. Animals can use colour for all kinds of different reasons. And some have colours that we ourselves can't even see. But with new cameras, some developed especially for this series, we can reveal a world that has long been hidden from our eyes. We'll include an iPlayer link to the show in the episode description so you can all take a look at these wonderful films and obviously the medium of radio or podcasts doesn't show the colour and the whole concept. Tell us a little bit about the technology that you've developed, Stephen, to 
to bring this to life? So when we, when we spoke about Life in Colour with David Attenborough, I knew that he tried to make a series about this in the, in the 50s, I think, as a series producer rather than on-screen talent. And of course, in those days, uh, they were filming in black and white. And he was very excited by the idea of, at last, and more than 60 years later, actually tackling this subject, which is, again, taking a slightly different look at the natural world or trying to approach it from a way we always, you know, we see colourful animals on our screens all the time, but we don't, they don't often really go into the detail of, of how their colour works. Uh, for them. It's often a, a side issue to, to the main stories. So he was really keen to tell this story. And part of that was using new technology to see colours or that we can't ourselves see. And um, we we started work with a, a couple of scientists, some, one in um, America and one in Australia. Both of them have been working on polarisation cameras. And these are cameras that can record polarised light. And it's a very complex, I mean, I still haven't quite got my head around <laughs> polarized light, but it's, it's looking at how light is, is refracted or reflected and it becomes polarized as we have polarizing sunglasses. And many animals use this in, in their day-to-day -day lives. And these cameras are really in their infancy. And so we work with these scientists to really uh, make them field-worthy because some of them were actually being developed for medical purposes or so working in labs and hadn't really been taken out into the field before. Um, at the same time, the, one of those scientists um, in Australia, uh, uh, Professor Justin Marshall, who works on colour in animals, had been developing a UV um, system, which is, is based on, a, it's, a, it's an old traditional thing of beam splitting, but people hadn't really used it a lot in, in recent years. And he kind of reinvented the wheel with it uh, so we could do it in 4K. So he was splitting uh, light so you could get U ultraviolet light in one camera and what we might say is normal light, the light that we can see in another camera, it allowed us to see both how we see the world and how how other animals like insects or birds or, or fish uh, see ultraviolet light in their world. So that was a, a big part and a real draw for David as, as part of the series. Mm. And this is the first time this has been done, isn't it? But definitely the polarisation. I mean, UV was touched on in Life of Birds many years ago, and that was in its infancy. But polarisation cameras are... Are very new, and I, I think the mantis shrimp is, is was one of the subjects that we cover, um, and polarization also in fiddler crabs. Um, but we were trying to combine the different aspects of polarized light and represent it in a way that our eyes could understand. And really, that's an aspect of software and and scientists building software and interpreting the image. I mean, I liken these things to telescopes. You're not actually recording a visual image in the same way that you would with a conventional camera. If you get a load of data sets, which are then interpreted, and you have to then feed that in and work out what the animal is seeing. So that, all that is new new uh, technology in a sense. And it, it allows us a little window into their, their world. Mm. Now, fascinating stuff is real sort of intersection of entertainment and science. Really, really fascinating stuff. Bo, how are you doing? Welcome to Telecast. We've been trying to get you on the show for months now. You're finally here. So, you know, playing hard to get always raises the value. So here we go. <laughs> I like that. Scarcity. You're, uh, you're, yeah, the, the concept of scarcity. I like, uh, I like that. You're back at Off the Fence now in Amsterdam. I've been now away. I mean, I was at Off the Fence for about 10 years and then I left. And uh, uh, on one glorious day, I got the phone call um, from uh, the new mother company, the new mothership, saying, "Do you want to come back? Do you want to come back home?" And it was a, it was a, a beautiful phone call, and um, and here I am. Have you got unfinished business? 
having worked in a sort of multi-genre distribution company and sort of the you know the streamers rolling in and everything was being inter- disruptive or disrupted i uh, i had a real sense that in order to you know put it all back together again you need to be you need to pick a specific genre and doing it from a multi genre point of view is very difficult and um sort of from a very esoteric point of view you know factual or non-scripted always kept a roof over my head and food on the table and i thought um it's good to come back and to reinvest and help sort of you know uh, put back the programming and development pipeline and the production uh, financing pipeline that have been so badly disrupted over the last i don't know six, seven years and um, yes and here i am three months in and still excited <laughs> very good very good and congratulations this uh, this week there's the uh, oscar nomination for my octopus teacher yeah it's totally totally phenomenal i mean it's an amazing project um craig foster being able to capture this you know special relationship um at a point in his life which was you know he was facing burnout it was sort of really you know this way or that way and this creature came out of nowhere to help guide him you know as this sort of Lautse um saying goes um when the student is ready the teacher appears and i think um not only in this film does the teacher appear as an octopus but i think it's a, a perfect timely piece because i think this little creature also appeared for us as a society and uh i'm sort of very thankful that netflix gave it such a sort of far reach globally to show this message because it's sort of it's a very very important one an important message of we're all one we're all connected and for a little creature like that crawling out of the deep dark kelp forest to possibly um fingers crossed to win an oscar would be phenomenal and uh, and hopefully it can come along and uh, and accept it as well yes <laughs> Brilliant. That would be good. It would. Uh, it would probably need nine different Oscars or eight, rather. Should I say that? I, I think there we are. eight octo. Thank you. Well, let's not get greedy. One. One is plenty. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's get a little taste for my octopus teacher. A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien, but the strange thing is, as you get closer to them you realize that we're very similar in a lot of ways. You're stepping into this completely different world. Such an incredible feeling. And you feel you're on the brink of something extraordinary. So, Bo, you've also published not one, but two new books recently. Tell us about those. So, you know, between my two jobs, I had a bit of time. And um, uh, one of my sort of uh, secret passions, fetishes, is coaching. And I've been coaching for the last 15 years. And I've just seen more and more people around me in the corporate environment, um, especially, you know, white, middle class 
you know, from a global point of view, fairly affluent, just being really miserable and unhappy. So uh, during this time between the jobs, I decided to use it productively um, and sort of did a bit of soul searching and decided to live with a, with a, with a Nordic shaman in Lapland for three weeks. And ta-da, two weeks later, here I am. And um, that's all I've got to say. Um, right. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. I knew you'd written books, but I didn't re- really. You went to live with a Nordic shaman. Yes. Um, did a bit of soul searching. What's the meaning of life anyway? And um, yes, and I survived to tell the tale. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, well, congratulations on that. We can include a link to your books, can't we, Bo, in the episode description to, to, to send people to have a look at them. Okay, okay. All that would right. be great. Great. So Natural History TV production is arguably making the biggest impact on changing attitudes of populations around the world, more than governments in many cases. Perversely, it can also be one of the most expensive in terms of carbon emissions and actually creating these shows because, you know, the huge budgets, big undertakings. Do you think there should be more responsibility? And do you think it's going to happen that uh, more people involved in the business of making natural history shows are going to make more of an effort to reduce emissions. And in fact, after COVID, do you think that is just a, uh, a logical development? Stephen? Yes. Uh, I, I think there's a, even before COVID, we were already on life in colour. We were already tapping into local crews where we could, um, you know, we, we, we kind of decided where we really needed to send, um, good camera operators from the UK and directors out to locations if we thought that they, they needed to be there. But we thought actually, particularly in India, for example, we were tapping into local crews for filming quite a lot. Um, so we were doing an element of that. And I think COVID has obviously accelerated that and it's become a big talking point. Um, and I think that's going to continue, even even if we get back to some kind of sense of normality. I don't know whether we really ever will, 100%. But I think it's important that we all recognize that that's, that is going to be a trend. And, you know, they're great filmmakers all around the world, aren't they? I mean, you know, you look at um, the lovely film Craig has made and Pippa and James. I mean, it's just that that's a fantastic film um, that's largely been filmed. You know, it's all been filmed in South Africa and done there. And it's fantastic. So I don't think you, you, you know, in the past, we've always had this kind of attitude of we have to send everybody everywhere. And I, I think we think twice about that now, which is very important. Yeah. And Bo, as a distributor, as well as a production business, are you seeing more broadcaster and streamer demand for natural history? Are things to things seem to have ramped up in this whole space over the last, you know, year or eighteen months. Is that is that right? Yeah, totally. There is a there's a real demand for natural history at the moment. Um, but as with many things in life. It's like a heartbeat, right? There is a demand and it goes away. And I think COVID has definitely got something to do with the recent demands and people being stuck at home. And uh, you don't need to sell a natural history program. The minute your 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 screen goes onto a natural history scene, you are just immediately sort of in awe and smitten by it. And it gives people this sort of need for escapism and being outdoors. And uh, it plays to the hands um, immediately. And to Stephen's point, you know, off the fence, been working with local crews for a long, long time because, you know, natural history is expensive, but there are many different ways of um, producing it. And working with local crews was always 
an aspect that we did, not only for cost effectiveness, but also for speed at times. And, um, and um, I do see similarities having come out of scripted now with natural history, because it is a very specific trade and not everybody can produce natural history. So there is a bit of a grabbing of talent, you know, on-air talent, but also production talent. And especially around Bristol, there's a hot demand for, um, you know, people who know what they're doing in sort of on ground, but also in post. And um, from what I sort of, from a business, from a distribution point of view, there is a very clear divide in the TV market for the, I would say, sort of 50 plus audiences, which are very much still on linear. And we're seeing a pickup on sort of people relicensing content. Uh, the beauty about natural history has got a fairly long shelf life. So broadcasters are using their runs more than they used to, and it, they are getting the ratings or even higher ratings than they're expecting. Um, but there's another side, because Oftafeds also um, partially owns Waterbear, the Waterbear network, um, which we are seeing a, really, a real spike in interest um, um, in the audience between 25 to 35, so the younger audiences. And what really excites me there is that they have an interest in the natural world, but they have very different storytelling to that world than the classic 50-plus audiences um, that are right now sort of leaning back into traditional genres because they just, uh, you know, uh, sort of yearn for the status quo when the world was still normal. But these younger audiences are really developing new ways of uh, telling stories they are also moving away from the classic celebrities that are still ce celebrated by the 50 plus, but they're looking for new um, celebrities like the Greaters. And, and there's very interesting storytelling coming from that space and they don't need budgets. So I'm really looking forward to the storytelling coming um, from that area. Yeah. And so you're, you're talking about short form content, are you? You're talking about literally YouTubers that are starting to build their own sort of natural history shows? Well, I'm on a sort of secret mission to to get rid of the word short form um, because it sort of describes what it's not. It's long form. So I we like to call them atomic stories. And they are a cost-effective way, a very in-depth way of telling all sorts of different stories um, and, and sort of rewriting mainstream story storytelling. It's a bit like biodiversity. We all know that biodiversity is really important, but when you're actually looking at television and the mainstream storytelling that we have, it's a bit like a mono story. There's no diversity in the way we tell stories. And these sort of atomic stories and different uh, medias that are now sort of sprinkling the, the, the media landscape have a very interesting um, scope of the way they tell the story, their music that they use, especially also natural history. Also the protagonists that are sort of featured in there. And I think I'm really excited by it because it's sort of this sort of narrative diversity, which will uh, keep the genre um, natural history going for years to come. Stephen, you're obviously become known for being a blue chip producer of, of natural history. And there's streaming boom we've seen come in over the last year in particular but over the last few years in in some cases but there's more buyers now and and a lot of these buyers are bigger businesses they're huge in many cases american media corporations that are looking to invest into this kind of storytelling do you expect this demand to just keep on increasing and increasing over the next sort of 
two, three years? I think it will carry on for a little longer than maybe I, I thought it would to begin with, because, I, you know, in the past, we've had boom and bust with blue chip natural history making in particular. And, and I remember when, I suppose, it was just as traditional broadcasters like the BBC kind of drove that cycle. But as these streamers come online and, you know, there are more coming, they they are tending to look towards natural history. And I think we, we share, you know, as Bo was saying, that it has a long shelf life. I mean, it's a little bit like drama. People, if you can put it onto one of these and people will come to it and may watch it again because it's got great quality. So I think, you know, what what is, I think, extending it is is, this, is the fact that there are more streamers coming online and thinking, okay, why don't we try and tap into natural history? Now, whether or not, you know, three or four years down the line, there'll be a, a shift in their way of thinking about that, or they might in some way um, join forces or somebody will buy somebody else out, that that may well happen. Uh, but at the moment, I think it's, it's going to be there for a little while longer. And I think it is the, I think it is, Really, the fact that people really across, you know, I was talking about the different uh, aspects of different ages. And I think that the good thing about natural history, in whatever form you, you look at it, is that people really, really engage with it across the whole spectrum. It's kind of the, you know, we are such a polarized society these days. Um, but natural history, you know, everybody can have a love of natural history. And, and I think people of all ages. So I think there's going to be a real fascination for that. So whatever form it takes, whether we, whether blue chip carries on in its conventional form or whether it shifts into a different way of storytelling, um, I think there's always going to be a demand for for natural history filmmaking. Yeah, is technology? Obviously, we're talking about the cutting edge of, like we said, science and and television and the intersection of those in terms of utilizing technology to tell these new stories. Is that just going to get more and more intense? The search for new technological ways of telling stories of the natural world? I think technology has been important for natural history and it often pushes boundaries. But I really, it's it's the storytelling that's crucial. And I think that that's, you know, and having a multitude of voices is important. And I think if you, you know, you can come up with, I mean, you know, My Octopus Teacher is a great example. It's, it's a wonderful story that combines, you know, this kind of almost mental health of somebody and what they've been through as an individual human being with this wonderful contact with the natural world. And I, I think that kind of multitude of voices is, is more important sometimes than the technology. I think the technology often drives interest from buyers in reinventing the wheel in terms of how do you explore this aspect of natural history again well we have new technology we can go into nighttime in a different way it, it does does help that but i think ultimately you have to have a really good story to tell and and i think natural history does and i think but i think we do and i'm, I'm it's really encouraging to hear with what's happening with Bo talking about water bear and the, the the different voices that are coming through the young people and i think the great thing about young people is in the past when we when i was making films i had in order to make a short film or, a, or a, even a small film that I could show to somebody, I had to get film. I had to get it developed. You know, I had to get a camera. And it was very expensive. Whereas now we have cameras where you can go out and experiment and, or even on phones. And even my kids, I mean, the things they create on their phones are extraordinary. And they're not afraid to experiment. And that is the great starting point. It's the experimentation. Because the technology today allows them to do that in a way that we couldn't years ago because... The technology for making films was owned by <laughs> by companies, and you had to buy very expensive stock off them or cameras. 
that is it's so much more universal now, which is great. Technology is often also driven by tech uh, by by the the tech companies who want to sell hardware, and that's why we had sort of the three D thing, and now we had four K, and people are talking about eight K, and it's sort of you know it's always going to be a pressure within our industry. Um, but what I find fascinating to see is um, besides technology pushing the envelope, what the hardest thing right now is to get good access because the best stories or the most unique stories that we really want to put on screen, these people quite often don't want to have the media on site because the distrust for um, the medium that we're in is so high that actually letting these people, letting them into these, letting us into these vulnerable spaces or these secret spaces. Um, and it's a bit like when you look at scripted and the, the price points for IP and book rights ballooning, I can see that sort of getting access to the best stories is getting more and more difficult. It doesn't matter how many development execs you have on your payroll. It's, it's what your name as an organization is and how you how you champion a specific subgenre, let's say, within natural history, where people really trust you and let you in. I think that's very true. I think that's very true. And I, I, th- I think there was a, it's, it's access to great stories and scientists or, or, or individuals who are working in the natural world. It's also access to places around the world. You know, what, what we found after the initial wave of uh, last year and everybody was locked down and we had a period of uh, one of our productions was on, on furlough is that we realized that as as productions were slowly getting back to filming people were trying to sort of almost buy up <laughs> access to certain places around the world and it became very competitive because if you think well that's that place we can go and film it's safe you know or or they want to film with us but they're offering money and uh, you know and i think and I think those places, you know, people working in those places recognize that as well. There's a value, a real value to that. They want to work with people they can trust. Uh, so I agree. I think that's a, a very important factor going forward with natural history filmmaking in particular. And now it's time in the show where my guests get to choose their TV industry story of the week that's interested them over the past seven days. Bo, What's your story of the week? Well, before we go to the specific, there is, I think there's an overall pattern that I would like, you know, about 18 months ago, maybe two to 24 months ago, when we looked at the press releases going around, I mean, they were riddled with sort of aggressive M&A, mergers and acquisition, and who's going to buy who, and then, you know, who's going to land the next um, talent deal with Netflix. And it was sort of sort of like the battles of the gods, and um, and sort of the average TV world wasn't very reflected. And, you know, pouring through the press releases over the last week, I was really sort of, um, I felt excited and sort of um, that the old industry that we know was more present in the news, in the news feeds. There was much more talk about content and what what's going where and why. There was also um, a lot of, um, where I always say that a lot of people on air get celebrated, but... I think the true um, talents can also be behind the camera and you see a lot of key executives shuffling around, finding new homes. And where they go is, tells a very interesting story where the next green shoots are going to be appearing. And I think it's just a, a fascinating view of um, where it's all heading. But um, to my point earlier, the, the one story, and, um, and without constantly going back to natural history, but what, what I found really exciting to see is a is a piece on um, YouTube, YouTube Originals, um, interested and willing to explore into natural history, which has always been like this draconian, 
50 plus genre and um, for these sort of new new players to explore the natural world with the many different styles of storytelling that they already home now um, and bringing this genre to their stables, I think will be a really exciting opportunity to, you know, freshen up natural history and also within natural history, also science and, you know, some of these genres which are sometimes seem to deemed to be too academic and dusty. And, um, and that just, yeah, got me, got, my, got me a bit excited. And that's the story that uh, YouTube's Luke Hyams is really looking for natural history projects. Yes. And I think it's, it's, I think it's for me, that story is the tip of the iceberg. I think within that story, there's a much bigger, bigger, um, you know, searching for how do we tell the stories of the world and uh, putting those two together is just, um, it's, it's a beautiful fusion. Stephen, what's your story of the week? Well, my story of the week goes back to the the, the BAFTA announcement, which I think is about five or six days ago now, which uh, had uh, a, a large number of female directors uh, in in the shortlist for the first time, I think, um, ever, um, particularly after the year before where there were none. And I, I think the Oscar announcement too has, has um, shown an increased number of uh, female directors and female talent represented. And I thought that was a really positive story because... You know, particularly in the last week, it's been a very tough story, isn't it, really, in terms of what's been happening in the UK um, and how, uh, you know, women feel, feel threatened and, and, and what's going on in the, in the general story here. Um, I thought that was a really positive step, you know, and, and in the right direction. You know, and, I, and I, I hope, I hope that sort of, it's one of those stories that you see and you think can just pass by very quickly, but I hope people really pick up and run with that because I think, this idea of representation, not like diversity in, in its broadest form, um, is still a very important thing, I think, it, particularly in natural history filmmaking. You know, it, natural history, it, it certainly in, in the UK, evolved out of a very middle class, white, often very wealthy background and, and, and very male usually. So it's, it's lovely to see, if we can, that there's more representation generally uh, in terms of diversity, but also of, of women, you know, actually being involved in that. But so I thought the BAFTA announcement was very encouraging. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. And and uh, we'll we'll include a, a link to, to that story again and Bo's link as well in the episode description. And now it's that time of the show where my guests get to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they're telling to get in the bin. Bo, who's your hero of the week? Um, I've got two heroes. One has a heartbeat, the other one less of <laughs> a heartbeat. All right. Um, I think we all should sort of talk about... Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, more constantly, all the time. I think she is the, a blueprint of a leader of that we need to have more in the world. And whenever I hear what she does and what she's doing, and also, you know, leading a, uh, a nation through uh, emotions and vulnerability, I'm in awe every time I hear about her. That's the first one. And uh, the second one is a bit sort of dry. But it also, I think it sort of, it allows for green shoots in the future. And that is the, the new rules of engagement that street streamers have to adhere to as part of the European Union and um, the European quotas. And that, you know, a year, a year and a half ago, the, those were just sort of rumbles in the jungle. And now they're really happening. 
And I think that will be will do wonders to the production and distribution community of Europe. Absolutely. Interesting. Stephen, who's your Hero of the Week? My Hero of the Week, because I know that you've had many people have, um, uh, Piers Morgan has been uh, yes. the uh, person people have hated <laughs> on your show. My Hero of the Week is, is actually Alex Beresford, who actually stood up to Piers on, on the famous walkout scene uh, of the last week. And uh, Alex Beresford is actually from Bristol. Uh, originally a weather presenter, and I thought it was quite brave of him to actually stand up in such a way and actually cause Piers Morgan to to walk off set and ultimately walk away from GMB. Yeah. So it's a very a very specific thing, but I just thought, well, good on you, um, because you could be intimidated very much by by someone like Piers Morgan, and and I thought that was a, a really good turning point. So I, I admire him tremendously. Yeah. That. Hopefully that will uh, spark uh, another. Uh, side of his career who knows well probably yes but, good luck to him yeah well as a lot of people were talking about him obviously last week Stephen who or what are you telling to get in the bin well this is a I, I hate to say this because it, it goes it's a scripted genre thing but I really want to see fewer and fewer scripted crime dramas that have women or children being killed and I found during lockdown that you know we always trying to find things on, on the streamer platforms or on the BBC. And I really struggled to watch The Serpent. The Serpent is an absolute, it's been one of the big hits on the BBC. And uh, everybody kept telling me to watch it. And I did watch it with my partner. We watched it all the way through eventually. But it took about four attempts because it was another example of another um, crime drama um, that involved it wasn't just women, I must admit, in The Serpent, but it, it was primarily. And I, I just find that incredibly disturbing. And I think we have to think very carefully about the, the entertainment industry, about should we be commissioning these sorts of programmes, really. Um, it's not to say it was a brilliantly made series. And I, and I watched it to the end, and the, far, the last two were incredibly uh, great bit of storytelling. And, um, but I do find that there's a lot of, increasingly a lot of this kind of crime drama, which taps into that kind of attacks on women or children you know when you've got kids yourself you kind of steer away from those things and uh, I find those a really hard watch I know some people enjoy them but I, I just just would prefer to see fewer of those really yeah yeah it's, you raise a really interesting point actually in terms of the changes that we've gone through in society particularly over the last 12 or 18 months or so and uh, and how they're represented when it comes to scripted storytelling so uh, now fascinating point Bo how about you? What's going in your bin? I I really struggled with this one. Um, and I was sort of like combing through my day to day and I wasn't quite sure what I want to throw in the bin until I kind of went a bit big picture. And then there I found it. I would like to put spelling into the bin. Spelling? <laughs> spelling. Just generally. I mean, I am dyslexic, so I have, you know, I, you know, I don't like spelling anyway. But I think we, I mean, this again is a bit esoteric, but if we as a society really want to change and move away and like think up of new ways and my, you know, my children are going through school and, you know, they're dyslexic too. And I just look at the spelling rules and kind of go, if we really want to reinvent and do something and, you know, why don't we just throw spelling away and let's just sort of reinvent from the micro and, um, and how much fun we would have if we all could sort of spell our own way. Yeah. 
That's, that's completely chaotic, Bo, but um, I, I, I love... I think that's a very interesting idea. Anarchy! Yeah, I love the idea. That's uh, that's brilliant. Well, certainly... And punctuation, punctuation is part of spelling, okay? Yeah, okay. All right, well, well certainly spell check. Spell check will definitely go in the bin, that's for sure. The number of emails <laughs> that uh, that I get sent, and that I probably send as well, that uh, have, uh, you know, have got nonsensical words in them. But who who judges that? Who judges it's nonsensical? Maybe they're beautiful in their own right. That's right. A new art form. I like this. We could. I, I agree. I agree. I think that uh, you know pedants about grammar, punctuation, it sometimes stifles creativity, doesn't it? So let's just be let's just be free. Yeah. Be gone. All right. Be gone. Exactly. Be gone. All right. Well, everybody can look at all the uh, all the spelling that goes into the uh, episode description and uh, see how many mistakes I'm making this week. Bo, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on Telecast on the 50th episode of Telecast. So it's been great to have you on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in person very soon in Amsterdam or in Bristol or maybe maybe even in London, maybe even in Cannes, maybe somewhere else. But it's great to, to speak to you. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. One of the week's most talked about TV shows was last night's, that's Wednesday, 17th of March's, broadcast of Caroline Flack, Her Life and Death on Channel 4 in the UK. Caroline Flack was one of Britain's most popular TV presenters, a host of Love Island, X Factor and winner of Strictly Come Dancing and it's just over a year since she tragically took her own life. Joining me is Dov Freeman, executive producer of the film who runs Curious Films with Charlie Russell. Thanks for coming on the show, Dov. It's a pleasure. How are you, Justin? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. This film that you've made is an incredibly personal and intimate look at Caroline Flack's life. Tell us how you came to make it. We actually met Caroline earlier last year and we were talking to her about doing a film for Channel 4 that was um, it was going to be taking a look essentially about what she was going through with her court case coming up and we met and we had a chat she felt like making a documentary would be really helpful for her I think she felt she wasn't being heard her voice wasn't being heard in all the controversy surrounding her being caught in the media spotlight and yeah Channel 4 were on board we were on board and you know I think everyone felt positive about making uh, making a film together but sadly that film that project never happened and we ended up making something quite different yeah absolutely now the film switches between the last few days of caroline's life and takes a look back at some of the pivotal moments of her life with really touching home videos of caroline and her twin sister jody that must have been incredibly sensitive process to work through with the family yeah, I mean, how how it essentially came about is we, I mean, you know, both Charlie and I were quite struck by what happened with Caroline, and, and more than anything, we we wanted to pay our respects to um, her mum, Christine, and her sister, Jodie. Not forgetting, of course, when Caroline uh, passed away, COVID was only a few weeks around the corner on the first lockdown, so we eventually reached out to the family and I think we went to see them in the summer, maybe late summer last year, um, just to 
essentially pay our respects and tell them about our encounter with 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 Carrie. Actually, what we never knew was Carrie had told had told her mum and sister that she was going to be making a documentary with us. So you know. The, co- the dots were kind of drawn together, really, and, and quite quickly the conversation turned to um, what a film could look like now and whether or not they would be interested in, you know, going on that journey with us. I, th- I think essentially we all felt that someone was probably going to make a film about Caroline's life. As you said in your intro, she was one of Britain's kind of biggest celebrities, biggest stars, so someone was going to make a a film about what happened to her. And I think the family felt that if there was one going to be made, then, you know, it should have a an essence of what Caroline wanted to do, you know, and have their involvement with it, which which is where the conversation took us. And you mentioned Carrie earlier on. Can you just explain who Carrie is? Yes, Carrie, Caroline's nickname, uh, shortened name for what her friends and family call her. And I think, I think she's referred to Carrie a lot in the film as well. The film strikes me as a really sensitive study of suicide and mental health. She was obviously an incredibly talented presenter, but she wasn't equipped for everything that comes with fame today, was she? Well, who is equipped for everything that fame throws at you today? I mean, you know, the stories that she told us in that meeting that, you know, we couldn't end up putting in the film, but I think some of the the treatment that, that goes with being a celebrity today is it's really, really challenging. And, you know, I think the film argues that uh, potentially it's even harder for women. So, yeah, I know one of her friends does, does, does make that comment, but I think, you know, Caroline's story isn't, com- sadly, it's not a completely original story. We've seen, you know, women, high-profile women in the spotlight. This has happened to you before, but I think what, what feels like heightened with, with Caroline's story is the the role the press played, the role that social media played and, and, and kind of mental health. We thought it was important to kind of really look back at Caroline's whole life to try and explore, you know, why she died, what happened to her. How do you maintain an objective view in terms of the process of making a film and, and, and creating a, a really great piece of work and delivering that to a broadcaster whilst working with a family that's so clearly still shattered from this whole experience. How do you maintain that objective view? I think we took things very slowly at the beginning with, with, with the family and kind of trying to work out what it was we wanted to make and what they wanted to make and, you know, having an open conversation with the channel as well. We went quite slowly with them. I think Charlie, my um, my business partner and the, the director of the, of the film, you know, in the in the early stages, he just went went and hang out with Christine and Jody, just himself and the camera, just to kind of work out. First of all, get them comfortable with the process of talking about Caroline and sort of being filmed and stuff as well. So we used that as a way to work out what the stories that, that they wanted to tell, how honest they wanted to be. And it was a, a, a constantly evolving conversation with the channel about where we th- thought the film was, was going to be heading. I mean, I'm in awe of kind of not just Christine and Jodie, but all the contributors in the film. I think all of them are so brave and honest in what they talk about in the film. It, it really strikes me as, as, as kind of you know one of the most powerful elements of the doc. 
Well, it's incredibly moving. And you mentioned the contributors. Amongst Caroline's friends and family, there's also some of her other co-stars, uh, Demma O'Leary and Ollie Mers, who she's obviously both both seem incredibly affected by Caroline's death. Do you think it was cathartic for them to appear in the film and talk about Caroline? Yeah, no, absolutely, I do. I think for everyone, and I actually think even even for even going back to Chris and Jody when we started filming with them. Remember, we were like four, five months after Caroline died, so I think the whole process they started to understand it was going to be more cathartic for them and then I think that 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 flowed into our friends and family uh, sorry are the friends that we see in the dark like Dermot Ollie Anna Blue um in the film but in a weird way I think Covid had a has a role to play in all this as well in that you know Caroline died and then the country went into lockdown and you know I think I think all of us everyone was kind of starved of kind of human interaction to some degree but when you're throwing in grief into the mix there I think that by the time we sat our interviewees down we 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 created this safe interview space that was cathartic for all of them to really open up about the loss of their friend and I think there's a real potency again about those interviews and, and how honest and and truthful they are and you know, I do think COVID and the year that we've all lived through has got a has had a has had a role to play in that. And when it comes to Caroline's mum and her, and her twin sister Jodie, uh, and not just her sister, a twin sister, which must make it even more difficult. Were they really keen to have this film made as not only obviously something to to, to remember Caroline by, but to touch on Neil, all those issues that you mentioned earlier on, social media, media intrusion, etc. I mean, do you think that they they were really keen to to touch on the, all those elements that that played a part in Caroline tragically taking her own life? I think that's right. I, th- I don't think they quite. I don't think any of us quite understood, as I said from the outset some of the points that the film was 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 going to make. But I, I certainly think sitting down and showing them the doc about uh, three or four weeks ago, they, they really they really felt how important this film was going to be for them, that, that, that it was going to create some sort of legacy for Caroline's death in, 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 in the, you know, the areas that it touch, touches on, mental health, suicide, uh, G, uh, GTFK in the TV industry. I think there's a lot in there and I feel that um, their feeling about the film now is that hopefully it's going to start a conversation and, you know, who knows, it might do some good. As you say, it's incredibly timely in the context of Meghan Markle's revelations last week uh, on her mental health issues and coping with pressure and also the impact that abusive social media comments can have on some people. We've seen some vile abuse targeted at footballers recently. Caroline appeared to be addicted to social media as well. That's something that came really came through strongly in the film. And she must have been taking these really vile comments to heart. And that, that must have played a real role in, in her mental health at that point. Social media seems to really heighten the impact it's had on, on, on her story. And you hear throughout the film a lot, a lot of those closest to her talk about how 
addicted to her phone and the sort of affirmation of social media she was and yeah I think it was something everyone was aware with her and I think one of her uh, her agents says they tried to win her off it but um, she was addicted to that kind of affirmation and I think we all know that social media has that um, effect on people. It does and uh, and if as we talked about earlier on if people are, are less equipped mentally for, uh, for for that then you know if they come in the firing line it's uh, it can be incredibly damaging. Is there a duty of care, do you think, from broadcasters to help their talent more? Because I think that, you know, it's easy to to see people who are discovered, who are incredibly talented, uh, whether that's on stage or as a, a presenter. And clearly what they want to achieve is they want to achieve fame. They want to be successful and they want to be on the biggest shows. And that's exactly what Caroline achieved. But, you know, the impact and the pressure that brings with that, from in terms of media intrusion, in terms of her private life and everything else, do you think there's a there's a, a duty of care from broadcasters to really start to help their talent a little bit more than they are doing right now? Yeah, I think it's probably the whole industry rather than just broadcasters. But I think you know one, one of the I think one of the, one of the saddest parts of the film is that that Caroline was felt so ashamed to share her mental health problems with those around her. And, you know, if the film does any good, then hopefully it's kind of like, let, 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 let's talk about these kind of things, the problems that we have. So I don't think it, I think, yes, the broadcasters have a, have a role to play, but, you know, I think that's the same for, um, for production companies. I think that's the same for, you know, production teams. You know, it's, it's, it's throughout the whole industry. And I think, you know, there's a lot of conversations like this around at the moment. And, my hope is that if people take anything from this film, it's like, you know, if people have problems and, you know, we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about them. It's a hard, high-pressure job in all different genres of, of making telly. So, yeah, I would just hope that people feel it's all right to talk about them because that feels for me the greatest sort of tragedy that, that she didn't. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I, you know, I wish you all the very best of success with this film it's a it's a remarkably sensitive view uh, of caroline's life and uh and i really do hope it will go on to be widely recognized as something that you know really can play a part in uh in making a bit of a difference to 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 people and how they how they uh, cope with mental health issues across the tv industry in terms of other things that curious are on with at the moment and obviously you you're actually one of the first people that's come on the show who's been nominated as a hero of the week and also come on as a guest. I think John McVeigh from Pact is the only other person to have that uh, high accolade. Um, that was for your previous documentary, or one of your pre- previous documentary films, Being Frank, which was you know, incredibly well received as well, quite rightly. Um, what else have you been up to recently? I'm not sure how much we can talk about, really. There's a, we've, we've got a few, we've got a couple of projects in production for the BBC. Uh, we just started a, a new um, uh, kind of true crime project for another broadcaster as well. But they're both sort of quite tightly under wraps at the moment. But we're, you know, we're, we're, we're busy. You know, it feels like our the sort of brand of the sort of films that we want to be making, um, kind of premium, factual um stories 
um, seems to be coming through. And yeah, we're 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 we're, make, we're making the kind of films that we wanted to make, and one of the reasons why we set Curious Films up in the first place. So um, we're, we're busy, but looking forward to restrictions hopefully being lifted somewhat in the coming months because uh, I'm sure, like everyone, been it's been very very challenging to keep going. Um, yeah. COVID and keep keep the teams going and just the amount of resources and uh, that have gone into keeping everyone safe has, has been considerable. But um, hopefully we're coming out the other end of it now. Do you expect to see a real bounce in terms of commissions, in terms of projects that you've possibly got in at Broadcasters now that, that might get greenlit once more and more confidence returns. Do you expect it to be a, a, a really sort of bumper second half of the year? I'm hoping so. I think everyone, from from our experience and our conversations, I think there's a lot of uh, wait and see happening. I think particularly with projects that in, are involving more international travel, I feel people are maybe hoping things will, will ease somewhat. So projects that channels know that they want to do, they're going to sort of hit the green light on. Yeah, I think everyone's just hoping for a bit more confidence. I mean, we're hoping to be back in an office again in the next five or six weeks, probably not full-time, five days a week. But I think, um, you know, delivering films like, like like the Caroline Doc, doing it all remotely has been really, really challenging, as I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast can appreciate. So I think, I think we're looking forward to, in the first instance, just FaceTime again with each other um, a couple of times a week, whether that be production meetings or development sessions. I think we're all feeling very starved of sort of personal contact. Curious Films has been going for, what, three years now? Is that right? A bit under, about two and a half years. Two and a half years. Okay. So still very young production company. You've had amazing success so far with some of your previous films, and I'm sure you will have on, on this one as well. Is now the time for you take an investment to, to grow things faster or are you quite happy as you are growing organically? I think we're, I think we're enjoying growing organically at the moment. I think our first key priority was to sort of make sure we come through COVID and keep all our productions on track. And then throughout the year, we, we've delivered those shows. So can we get more shows kind of commissions? Yeah, I think at the moment it's quite organic. And as I said, we're enjoying making the kind of films and projects that we want to be making. And then I think we'll sort of, you know, maybe reassess when we're next year, when we're through this, which I hope we will be, and see what it needs. I mean, it's it's difficult to get a sense of where, where the indie community is and where the industry is because you, you sort of feel you almost have tunnel vision for, you know, dealing with the, own, you, the challenges with your, within your own company. Um, so I'll be interested to see, you know, how the industry feels uh, towards the end of the year, next year, and hopefully confidence returns and uh, we can see where we are. Yeah, you get you get much better sense of that. I think when everybody can get into the same room and have a chat and say, you know, how's it gone and uh, and what do you think and uh, what's this broadcaster doing or or uh, you know what's this distributor planning or or, or whatever. You do. You realise how much you miss those kind of industry get-togethers, just where you, you know, you share stories or challenges or problems. I mean, that's 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 probably been one of the hardest things we've missed 
kind of this year? Because as I said, you're just so focused on what's kind of going on within your own company. And maybe you speak to like, you know, a couple of other close friends that are doing similar things. But yeah, it feel, we, we feel really starved at those moments, don't we? And, and knowing what everyone else is going through and um, how everyone's feeling and how everyone's businesses are doing. Someone equated it to me as being what everyone's boats are going to look like when the storm, when the tide goes out of COVID. I think one of the things we experienced in sort of last year is we were we were able to speak to kind of more commissioners from like different platforms or channels than we than we had done before because everyone sort of sat at home essentially, right? And so we've started up new conversations with new people, and you know we're we're confident that we can as we emerge through COVID through the second half of the year, that hopefully they can start to become a little bit more fruitful and we can, you know, start working with more buyers. Well, I'm sure you will, Dov. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week and best of luck with Caroline Flack, Her Life and Death, which is now available on all four on Catch Up. Please watch the film. It's uh, it's a really, really important film, I think. So thanks again for coming on the show, Dov, and, uh, We'll see you very soon in the spring sometime. Maybe some football. My pleasure. That would be great. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for Commissioner's Corner, our regular series of chats with commissioning executives of networks and streamers. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Pete Thornton, Head of Scripted at UK TV. Hi, Pete. Welcome to Telecast. Hi, Justin. Thanks very much for having me. Great to have you on the show. Now, we had Helen Nightingale on a few weeks ago to talk about unscripted commissioning and I'm I'm still looking for a female trawler crew for the idea that I pitched to Helen. You're on the scripted side. Can you tell us a bit more about your role at UK TV and your team and the drama audience and the comedy audience that you serve? Yes, absolutely. I should just before I start, I, I'm surprised you don't know the trawler show has already been commissioned. Apparently you're no longer in the loop. Really? Is that right? Well, it it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I've not watched <laughs> Helen Nightingale, I'm afraid. Um, that's a sad story, isn't it? Um, no, I, I, very much enjoyed, I really enjoyed that chat, and she was uh, very impressed. I hope I can be as informative and as useful as she was. So I look after all scripted content on UK TV, and so that is, as you say, it's drama and it's comedy, and, and across three channels, really. Um, the comedy shows are split between Gold and Dave, and the drama shows are commissioned onto Alibi. Uh, UK TV has been going about 25 years and we have seven channels uh, in the linear space of which some are in the pay space only and uh, and some are in, uh, available on, on freeview as well so in the free in free to air space we have Dave drama and yesterday and then in the pay space we've got uh, gold alibi w and eden and then we also have our our UK TV play avod uh, catch up service so it's quite a broad remit um i have a drama specialist uh philippa collie cousins who i i hope and understand is going to be having her own session with you guys in due course and she'll talk in much more detail i hope about the drama um initiative which really she's spearheading and then i'm due to uh shortly arriving we have we hope we have a, a dedicated comedy commissioner um, coming to join us and that's not announced yet but hopefully not too distant future so uh, at the moment i'm still looking after the comedy 
team on my own. Um, I also have a script reader and Philip has a script reader and there's various other people within the comedy commissioning team within, within the commissioning team who help me out in terms of just uh, reading scripts and, and you know processing a lot of the content which we get in. There's a huge amount of, of, of scripts, as you can imagine, being submitted. So, um, so we have a, a submissions at UKTV uh, website, uh, email address rather, submissions at UKTV website, which uh, is monitored by a colleague of mine. And so she She's part of our reading team as well. To give us an idea of the amount of original content that you commission across comedy and drama per year, can you give us an idea of, of what amount of content we're talking about? It varies. And and happily, from my point of view, the amount is going up, which is great. It's great to be in a growth position. Of the drama side, at the moment, we have about five series and we tend to do six times one hours is the shape of our drama commissions. So Philip is looking after five series at the moment. Two of those are returners and three are newbies. Um, so that's an extremely exciting burgeoning state that she's uh, managing over there. And then on the comedy front, we do about three to four series each a year on Dave and on Gold. And it varies in terms of total hours because we start off in comedy, we start off by doing three half hours as a sort of Uber pilots. We don't make pilots in, in, in at UK TV. It just doesn't really work for us as a development strategy or route. So we do three half hours to start, um, which gives us a really good idea of the shape of any series and it's just a better research tool than just doing one half hour, which is pretty, it's hard to tell what you've got from one half hour, particularly if you broadcast it. We don't do enough uh, to do sort of pilot seasons. So um, so we do these three half hours mini starts. And then if we like the show and it does well for us, we bring those back as full six part series. So so when we commission on to Dave and Gold, some of those uh, new series will be three parters, some returners will be six parters. And we also do 90 minute one offs, which we've had some success with on gold uh, and on Dave, actually. So there's three kind of areas, but it's broadly that's the sort of shape of things. How about shows that are currently working particularly well on UK TV channels? Can you just highlight what sort of dramas and what sort of comedy is, you know, really summing up where you want to be right now and uh, perhaps some hints to the future about the type of content that you're looking to commission in the coming months and years? I'll let Philippa talk in detail about drama, but you know she's had two shows go out. In, in early 2019, we didn't have, we had never had our own dedicated you know, drama commission on Alibi. Uh, so Traces was our first shot at that uh, target, and that was in December 2019. And that broke all records on Alibi straight out of the box. And she followed that up with We Hunt Together, um, which was in early 2020, uh, went out then. And both those shows were big hits for the channel and both are coming back. So they've worked well. And that's they are both serialized. Um, we have a series in production at the moment, which is more story of the week. So that's a new area that she's investigating. Uh, and that's starring Nicola Walker. It's called Annika. It's filming at the moment um, off the coast of... Scotland in the North Sea rather than the me. So that's a new flavour. And we have another story of the week show coming up, coming down the tracks, coming from World Productions called The Diplomat, which is which is set in Barcelona. So there's different flavours that she will talk about there, but she's had huge success in the drama sphere, you know, really straight out of the box, two swings at the bat and two home runs so far. 
yeah, we've been commissioning for longer in comedy. We started commissioning on gold in scripted comedy. I mean, um, probably, I think about seven years ago now was our first show on gold called You, Me and Them. Uh, so we've been going a little bit longer. Uh, and recently we've had a pretty good run on gold, um, starting off with a series with Johnny Vegas and Sean Gibson, which started off in 2017 as a 90-minute film, a sort of Agatha Christie spoof called Murder on the Blackpool Express. Uh, that was actually commissioned by Hilary Rosen and Richard Watson um, before I arrived. So the kudos for that little gem really goes to them rather than me. But I've been looking after it on their behalf since then. So we've had three films for Gold. Murder on the Blackpool Express was followed up by Death on the Tyne. And then last year, or 2019, uh, Dial M from Middlesbrough. Uh, and we've now evolved that show um, because we always like to try to keep things as fresh as we possibly can. And when you get a series that's working, it's really important to us that we protect it and look after it, but also that we allow it to grow and evolve and to keep it fresh. So um, with the Blackpool series, with that franchise, we thought, well, you know, we've done three hour-long films and as annual treats. You know, what can we do to to explore the next steps for that? Uh, and, we've, and we've evolved that into three one-hour episodes now. So the show's slightly changed. Um, the characters of uh, Terry... Um, and Gemma, played by Johnny and Sean, have they've now given up their coach tour business finally and become fully fledged, useless private investigators. Uh, so there's three hours which we made at the end of last year with Shiny Button uh, in the teeth of COVID, and they're they're going to be ready to go out in the spring, late spring, early summer this year. Um, so that's done. You know, when that came out, um, the first one, Murder on the Blackpool Express, was the biggest show in Gold's entire history. So that was an incredibly interesting uh, thing for us to discover because we were kind of at that time we were worried that the gold audience weren't really that receptive to new content because obviously if you go to gold you're going to watch you know the very very best of scripted comedy that's out there to be to be bought so so the, the content we buy after bbc is incredibly high quality and so when you're trying to commission your own content to compete with that it's it's tough you know people aren't obviously often looking for new content so we were really delighted when uh, Blackpool did so well for us. It showed that audience are open to, to new content on Gold. And we've kind of built on that success with two other shows, both half hours. Um, but the Cockfields, it, it, that did very well for us. That consolidated up to over a million, which is a big, big audience for Gold. So um, that was a three-parter. Again, we launched it with three parts. Um Tragically, you know, Bobby Ball, who starred in that show, is no longer with us. So, um, you know, we're having to look at, at that and how we react to that sad event. And we had Sandylands uh, launching at a similar time. It actually went out in 2019 as well. Uh, and that was a three times 30, again, a sort of Uber pilot. Uh, and that did really well for us as well. That, that, that was actually, actually went out in 2020, I think, Sandylands. And the episode one was the second highest rated show on Gold in 2020. So we've had a fairly decent run, but there's lots, lots more we can do on Gold. That's a real area for focusing on and for, for not only bringing some of those shows back, hopefully, but also for new content. Um, and then on Dave, you know, Red Dwarf is a really interesting show for us on Dave. It's not perhaps what you would necessarily expect to see, but we've been looking after that show for a number of years now. Um, we've made sort of three series, um, most of those before I arrived. But we, again, thinking about keeping things fresh, you know, we we saw, we made series 11 and 12, uh, both six times 30s uh, of that series just before I arrived. 
and they did well. But we were we did really well. But um, but we noticed a little bit of audience fatigue towards the end of series twelve when we sat down with Doug Naylor, who the brilliant writer and director of that series, and talked to him about again what do we do with Red Dwarf, a show that's been going for decades. You know, how can we keep that show fresh? And so we suggested to him that he might like to think about writing a ninety minute. You know, made for TV movie of Red Dwarf. So see that show in a format that it's never been seen in before. And he reacted incredibly well to that and came up with a brilliant script. Um, and the cast really loved the idea as well and enabled Doug to play in a slightly different area, tonally, to play with a, you know, to make a show that was a little bit less about just set up gag, set up gag, although it's still an audience sitcom but be able to play a little bit more with the characterization and to write some scenes that actually delved slightly deeper into those characters that we've known and loved for so many years to actually find out some more about their relationships. So, and that paid dividends. So Red Dwarf, uh, uh, the, the product of that was Red Dwarf, The Promised Land as a 90-minute Easter special, which went out last Easter and, again, was the highest-rated Red Dwarf that we've made for the last five years. So that did well. Um, uh, that rated over two million, which is, you know, obviously the audiences on Dave are going to be bigger than God because Dave's in the free space. Um, so the audience is yeah. generally going to be higher. Uh, and then the other show that we make on, on Dave, which, which we love and works well, is Sliced, which again, we, we made a three part at the start and we've made six parts now and they're going to be ready to show, um, in the near future, in the next couple of months, I hope. Um, so again, they shot that series. Uh, in the teeth of COVID in December and January. Um, so that's come back. So that sh- is a, it's a smaller audience than Red Dwarf, but it's a really, really valuable audience for us because the show skews young, it skews uh, you know, 16 to 34 over indexes on and ABC One. So there's two sort of strategies for Dave, reasons why we might commission a show for Dave. Either it's going to be a reputational play that brings in what we accept to be a smaller audience, perhaps, but a very valuable audience in terms of age group, uh, or it's going to be a big blockbuster like Red Dwarf, where you, you just pull in a, a huge, a huge audience and it doesn't really matter. It's spread across a you know, much wider demo. The, the other um, big show that I should mention on, on Dave is Meet the Richardsons, which is a semi-scripted show. Um, and that, uh, when it launched uh, again to over a million uh, consolidated was the biggest new show on Dave for the last five years. That's not sadly actually my show. So I'm not going to say too much about it. It belongs to Ian Coyle, my esteemed colleague who developed and bought it. So he looks after that, but it's semi-scripted. So, you know, it's in that sort of space where I tried to take some credit for it, even though I shouldn't really. Okay. Well, you mentioned a few productions there that you've you know you've got through despite COVID, and there's one you mentioned that you, there's currently going on on the uh, in the North Sea somewhere. Presumably, you've had a whole load of development backed up due to the pandemic. Presumably, there's been a lot of scripted projects that you've been sitting on, thinking, okay, you know, we can't go into production right now. Things are so uncertain. We just can't do it safely are we going to see a whole load of projects that you've been developing over the last 12 months suddenly spring into production over this over the spring and into the summer yes i think you know we've we took a very clear policy at uk tv that we would try to stand back up all the shows that we safely could stand back up you know, as soon as we could. So we put, like everybody, you know, we had to pause things around about this time last year. But it seems like a decade ago, doesn't it? Um, mm. But yeah, everything everything was put on hold. But we made a pledge that we weren't just going to drop things, that nothing was going to get cancelled if we could possibly avoid it, and that as soon as we could, 
we'd get back into business. And that's gradually what we've been doing. It's, it's harder for you know, different genres. It's very different uh, challenge putting on a scripted show where you've got perhaps you know, 60 people in a crew who you've all got to keep safe and have all got to be fit and healthy. Uh, and bringing those people together at the start of every day and then letting them go back home again every evening, that's a very different challenge to perhaps a documentary or, or a factory yeah. show where you've got a much smaller crew and a much smaller cast. So it's been really on a bespoke one-by-one -one basis. Um, and, you know, whilst we don't, whilst it doesn't mean, unfortunately, we've now got double the, double the slots you know we've carried everything over but you know we, we we haven't suddenly got you know all the money we need to some to, to keep making all the shows we wanted to make last year and then a, a batch of new ones this year we just don't have the bandwidth to make that sort of that sort of level of content but everything we've committed to is 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 coming is coming good uh some shows are still kind of in waiting in the in the wings whilst uh whilst covid hopefully finally dies away um but uh, you're going to see you know a big you know, there's going to be an explosion of content making. Uh, we're already seeing it. You know, trying to get freelance crews now for shoots this year is increasingly difficult already because everybody is just desperate to get shows that have been simmering back on the boil. So we're already finding yeah. that you know finding really good people is tricky. So um, and that's causing some inflation. So you know, it's it's a, it's been a it's been a real challenge on on several fronts. Not only the extra cost of you know making sure that we shoot things absolutely safely where you know people's health is obviously our top priority that costs money and that's one of those things that we've had to take on board but also just then finding people now who are free because everyone's in demand and that's and that's yeah even before you've got your your s4 giants coming on board parking their tanks on our lawn and nicking all our crews so yeah yeah and presumably studio space as well is is obviously in uh, in really high demand right now Absolutely. And I think that goes across, you know, for our comedy entertainment shows, that's been very difficult. And of course, those shows are hard to make because, you know, getting an audience in doesn't work, hasn't been possible, isn't safe. So, and, and a lot of those comedy entertainment shows really, they need an audience. You can shoot them without, but those performers, they kind of feed off the live buzz that you get. So I think, now, again, a lot of those shows have been paused. So all those shows are coming back online. So trying to get studio space is really hard. For me, in scripted comedy, you know, those those uh, sound stages, they're incredibly booked up. It's a, it's a tricky business. You know, since ITV shut their studios, and obviously with Television Centre being, you know, redeveloped, um, you know, we've lost a lot of space there. And so shooting an audience show is tough now. You've got to really get in early and get your space nailed down. Because of this backlog, do, does that mean there'll be less new commissioning from UK TV, uh, particularly when it comes to comedy? No, it's it's the opposite. There'll be there'll be yeah, we're we're ramping up all the time. So, um, so yeah, some of the shows that we're making this year would have been made last year in an ideal world, but overall our spend is up. You know, we've got about 150 projects on our slate across commissioning so which is more than ever and uh you know our spend in scripted is more than ever before on dave this year for example obviously the drama projects is much newer but that's uh you know the money being spent on drama is unprecedented on alibi uh and likewise on gold you know so we're lucky enough to be able to to report growth and that's in incredibly exciting for for me you know as part of a of the, a team for a linear broadcast to be working for a relatively traditional broadcast that's actually experiencing growth is 
really exciting and feels quite different, actually, I suspect, to many other linear, linear broadcasters. Well, maybe and hopefully we'll see even more demand coming on and, and money coming through the system, actually, because we, we had Ian Whitaker on last week, media analyst, and he was talking about this explosion in TV advertising that's about to be unleashed over the next uh, two, three months. And there's uh, some extraordinary uh, forecasts for ITV, for example, in you know ad spend going up about 75% into May. Mm. So hopefully that's also going to uh, benefit you as, as commercial channels. And hopefully that will lead to even more commissioning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're slightly... You know, we, we were semi-protected um, because not a, not all of our revenue comes from advertising. Of course, we have subscription revenue as well. So, so you know, last year, actually, ironically, because so many other big events such as the Olympics and the Euros got cancelled and more people were at home watching more TV, we had a really stellar year in terms of our performance. Um, so we had a much bigger slice of the pie than we thought we would. But of course, the, you know, the actual ad revenue coming in was was greatly reduced. So we still had didn't exactly have a fantastic time in terms of the bank balance. But, um, but you know, we, it was really great to see our share going up mm. at least. Um, so it's fascinating. You know, it feels to me very much like uh, the world's like a coiled spring. You know, it feels like everyone is kind of just waiting <laughs> patiently for these last few weeks and months to pass before we can finally get back to normal. And I think the summer's going to be really fascinating just emotionally. I think there'll be a big sort of outpouring of, of this kind of feeling of release. And I think hopefully that will, you know, uh, also show itself with people getting out and spending a bit of money and, yeah, the ad market, you know, recovering and us all feeling a little bit more cheerful about everything. Yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed that those pesky COVID variants are going to stay away, and we yeah. can uh, we can just deal with the main one that we've we're trying to bat down. In terms of budgets on the scripted side, obviously co-productions are going to be much more important. But um, let's let's just talk about from a comedy perspective. Presumably, your commissioning. You're 100% involved in the projects. You're, you're outright commissioning comedy shows without any other partners. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I mean, generally, um, yeah, we fully fund our comedies, unlike our dramas. So we don't have a set tariff. It does vary a little bit from channel to channel, and it definitely varies from project to project. Um, but we do have the sort of money that you need to do you know, very high-quality work. So there's nobody's going to come to UK TV and find themselves suddenly having successfully received a commission then staring down the barrel of paucity of money that just isn't the way we work so we're able to bat you know very much alongside the uh, the bigger terrestrial broadcasters like channel 4 and the bbc that's not to say that we wouldn't consider co-proing i mean it's something that we've done in drama in the early days really for in drama i commissioned a show onto w actually called flack which was a co-commission with pop a small network in america and that worked incredibly well for us and was very rewarding and, and we're definitely interested in looking at that model for comedy on day for example that's one of our longer term goals is to see if we can get going on a sexy co-commission with with an american broadcast it, it's much harder as you, as you know with comedy because you know, it doesn't tend to travel as well as drama does. But if we can do, it's a total win-win for us. I mean, why wouldn't we want to be in business on a show that either, you know, has double the budget we can normally have to spend and therefore we can afford to play with much bigger stars or, you know, much more ambitious uh, production in general, or we can 
make the same show but half the money and commission double the number of shows. So, yeah. so you know, it's and th- th- there shouldn't really be any cannibalization. We prove that. Um, you know, we can make a show uh, with an American co-commissioning partner that does very well for them at the same time as it does very well for us. Um, so we know that that's not an impediment to things. So it's definitely something that I... I'm interested in talking to people about. It seems to me to be a win-win if we can get it right. And we have got a few bits of development, you know, growing on our slate, which would definitely be suitable for co-proing. So it just makes, it just gives us more bang for our buck. But um, happily for us, we can also afford to do it solo, which is handy because, you know, the British sense of humor tends to be quite particular, shall we say. If you can crack that Anglo-American mid-Atlantic comedy that's that's fantastic isn't it i mean that can be you know that can turn into a a real global hit if you if you get that right absolutely i mean i think with with flack that was an hour-long drama but it was but it was you know it had comedic elements it was a little tonally it wasn't a million miles from the sort of witty dialogue you get in a show like killing eve and i think you know with the recent fashion for more narrative comedies such as uh fleabag or catastrophe to just pull a couple out of the ether um those shows have travelled well, and because they're slightly less skewed towards the pure pursuit of the joke, and they're slightly more skewed towards telling a great story at the same time, obviously those stories travel. The, you know, the humour is slightly compressed in the mix, and that makes it much easier to form those international alliances. So I suspect that's where we may find our joy in, our, in, in that ambition in the future. So, Pete, I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask you now what you're looking for specifically in comedy, so that the ears of producers will be pricking up to uh, to work out what they can pitch to you. And we'll talk about how they pitch to you in a second. But can you be specific about what you're looking for, what slots you're looking to fill, or what specifically what sort of show you're looking to commission for which channels in the comedy space? Absolutely. So, if we start off with gold. So we don't have specific slots. Like I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying oh, I need a show. You know, I need a six-parter for you know Q3 2022. We, we don't commission in that sense, um, but we always commission into the prime time slots on gold. So they need to be able to play pre pre and post watershed. So generally nine o'clock is or ten o'clock is is where we'll put our new content. But other than that, there's no hard and fast rules, uh, and we are looking for you know, half hour comedies and also for one-offs, you know, we're looking to replicate the success we had with the murder on the Blackpool express movies. So, you know, there may be an opportunity to do something else in a similar vein for gold. So starting off with a very familiar touch point, such as a, a whodunit and then putting a comedic spin on something like that. So there may be an opportunity to do something that perhaps starts off with a, something, you know, like a heist movie. We're in development on a couple of those sorts of projects for gold. Uh, but I'm also looking for three by 30 uh, half hours that can be built out to six by 30. Whatever we do, it'll always need to be returning, returnable. So whether that's a 90 minute film, if we do that, we're never going to do a film that is just 90 minutes and then that's the end of the story. It would always need to come back every year as an annual treat or, you know, be spin offable in the same way as we have with Johnny and Sean's show into hour long episodes. Gold is our sort of most mainstream channel. So back in the day when I started, Gold was probably very close to sort of ITV1, BBC1. 
we've evolved it a little bit in recent years to make it move a little bit more towards sort of BBC Two, Channel Four in terms of its tone, and we're trying to bring it significantly younger. So some people out there think that gold is just a channel for you know people in their sixties and seventies to watch in their retirement, in their dotage, um, which it definitely isn't. Um, the target audience for gold is 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 people in their forties and fifties. So we're looking for shows that that really over-index on that demo, and they will probably be multi-generational. So we need we need multiple entry points to bring in as wide an audience as possible. So if you look at a show like The Cockfields, for example, that is a family sitcom, uh, family comedy, but seen crucially through the eyes of a couple of you know late 30s, early 40s central protagonists. So yes, a lot of the heavy lifting is done by the older generation in that show, but it, but crucially, it's it's a, it's a family comedy that's seen from the viewpoint of the kids rather than the rather than the, their parents. So uh, that's a really important shift for Gold. So you know, producers should think about shows. Don't always think about shows about people who are who are you know in their retirement or who are dying off. Um, we're probably not going to commission shows about that sort of end of life kind of <laughs> jollity. Um, but we are looking for shows that feel quite young for gold. Uh, and probably language can't be too strong, um, but the language can be real. So, you know, we'll definitely commission shows where people speak as they normally speak. And so we're allowed a certain amount of realistic, strong language in that, but we can't have too much effing and jeffing on gold. And we, and we can't have, you know, drug abuse and, and hard hitting storylines, and we can't have things that are too edgy. Those sort of shows should definitely be directed more towards Dave. So I don't want gold to feel like a sort of soft, target it's a really exciting opportunity for me because personally my tastes lie in the sort of you know channel 4 bbc2 frame a little bit more than bbc1 itv1 i love all those channels but i find it easier to work in those slightly you know when you're trying not to be too broad um and that's the direction we're moving in for gold you know the cockfields was a was a huge hit for coming a bit younger sandy lands you know was was again you know the the star of that show is 27 so so you know to be having a show built around a 27 year old on gold perhaps shines quite a strong light on where we're going with that channel but we're looking for you know we're looking for actually some touch points that we and i don't want to be too prescriptive but some touch points that would apply across both dave and gold uh we look for shows that are highly relatable we look for shows that are highly original uh we look for some cultural relevance uh, and we look for emotional buy-in and we look for a strong sense of authorship so author stories and that can mean writer performers doesn't have to mean writer performers but you know those i mean that's that's probably too much of a cage to put things in but those are the sort of areas that we look at when we examine shows that come in so we're not really looking for high concept content or period content on gold it's generally going to be as i say multi-generational uh, warm and inclusive, uh, fresh, very contemporary stories, well told with a really interesting cast of characters. It's it, when you say you want shows that are both highly relatable and completely original. I appreciate that is a bit of a contradiction in terms because you can't have something that feels completely fresh but is also entirely relatable to everyone. But I think what you know, I mean when I say that is. You know, I want relatable precincts, so you know, settings that we all know and understand, but populated with original characters who we haven't seen before. That will give us the originality that we need, but also, you know, coupled with the familiarity that we seek. Um, on Dave, the tone is completely different, as you might imagine. Dave is much younger. It, the shows that we'll commission to Dave onto Dave 
tend to be monogenerational. So we're really focused on 1634 and really sort of late 20s, early 30s is the sweet spot for Dave. So we're fascinated by stories told by people and for people who are in their late 20s who are just, you know, starting out on life's journey and finding their own feet. Perhaps they're just, you know, moving out of their parents' house. Perhaps they're just starting on their career or they're starting on their first serious relationship or whatever it might be. But the 20s is an incredibly interesting and funny decade, I think. You know, it's the time where you can make as many mistakes as you like and and it doesn't really matter if you if you come out at the end of your 20s and you haven't really got anything achieved yet because that's the decade that you're supposed to be just experimenting, exploring making lots of mistakes, trying lots of new things. And that inherently is, is, is a rich ground for comedy. So, and we can be quite risky and we can be quite edgy on Dave. We need to be quite noisy, I think, in that space. If you look at a show like Sliced, you know, that's a very simple, again, a highly relatable world. It's just two guys who have got, you know, crappy jobs delivering pizzas who are just trying to get by and make a bit of money and not be persecuted by too many people. Maybe if they get lucky, you know, find a girlfriend. You know, th- those ambitions that everyone has in their 20s, they're central to that story. And we enjoy then throwing rocks in the path of those relatively modest ambitions. And, and you know, when we upset those guys, that hopefully that lovable duo at the heart of that show, and Samson K and Theo Bockel and Biggs' characters, uh, you know, we do that through authority figures. So we'll do that through either it's their boss or it's the police or it's their parents or whatever. So we feel united hopefully with uh, in our guys and in uh, and them having their lives ruined every week by these slightly older characters so that's how we tend to do that for dave um but those same sort of watch words of relatability originality cultural relevance you know we won't commission anything that doesn't feel as if it has something to say about modern life you know we're really interested in stories that shine a light on what it's like to be growing up in britain right now uh, so another reason why we tend to shy away from doing period content on Dave is quite a difficult thing for us to do. Um, and again, we've come on quite a strong journey from very high concept content. I mean, Red Dwarf is about as high concept as you as you get. Although it is also obviously a domestic comedy about you know a group of characters living in a confined space you don't get on. That's inherently very funny and has done us very well for thirty odd years with that show. But it's but it's sci fi. Um, we've come from that through Zapped, which was a show I was looking at for a while, which I loved, but again was quite high concept um, about a guy you know, falling through a, a tear in the fabric of time. Uh, through to Porters, which was much more grounded, but a, a workplace comedy set in hospital against, but slightly heightened, still heightened characters and still heightened um, you know, action. Through to Sliced, uh, and Sliced is really the sweet spot, I think, which is very low concept. So. You know, that's the sort of journey. It doesn't mean to we wouldn't you know, go back the other way. But at the moment, um, we are looking to really hit that relatability target. And I think, you know, we're trying to keep nimble. We're trying to react to the times. I think, uh, you know, with what we've all been through over the last year, that's changed people's thinking a little bit. I think everyone needs a bit of a cheer up. Uh, so we're probably much more open to shows that major on gags than we were when we were looking at more narrative comedy you know, again, we're looking at both, but I'm very aware of you know the need for people to escape a little bit. Well, funnily enough, I've got an idea for a female trawler crew comedy. <laughs> Is it funny? Is it funny though? It's on. It's very funny. Post Brexit, uh, out on the high seas, fighting the the French uh, fishing boats. Yeah, there you go. What are you definitely not looking for? Yeah, I've touched a little bit on what we're definitely looking for. I think. For Dave, um, 
shows that are have a very broad age range or have major roles for older characters probably wouldn't play on Dave. Um, so keep focused on that exciting 16 to 34 age group. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, there's nothing really that is off limits. There's a really broad ambition in terms of tone. So, you know, we're looking at, at more, you know, could we launch a half-hour drama on today, for example, at some point in the near future? That's a, that's a discussion that is ongoing. We keep looking at that and mulling that. I'm really interested in those modern dramas that skew young, like Normal People and I May Destroy that are in that half-hour format. So fascinating that when they came to make I May Destroy, they decide on 12 half-hours rather than more traditional six hours so you know is there a half hour drama opportunity on Dave something that we might look at but you know so totally from there through so there's no there's no real limits there but I think you know what we probably wouldn't do is something that we've got that feels similar to what we had before okay so we wouldn't you know we wouldn't do something that was set in South London about you know a couple of guys um in in the food delivery business for example that's um, yeah price to anyone uh on gold yeah, period comedy is difficult, although I love the ambition of shows like that. I think that's tricky. Uh, shows that feel too tonally harsh are very tricky for Gold. We probably wouldn't do a comedy drama on Gold. You know, people, that audience coming in to watch content on that channel are used to a high gag rate. You know, they are used to warm, inclusive, broad appealing you know, the, the gold standard of British comedy for years and years and years is the bedrock of that channel. So, you know, we're not trying to compete with that. And in fact, when we have made shows that we thought, well, let's make something that feels a little bit like that content, it's really it's really not worked out for us because people go, well, yeah. why would I watch Only Fools and Horses? Yeah, why would I watch something that's a bit like Only Fools and Horses when I can watch Only Fools and Horses? Uh, yeah. Which is understandable. So where we've had success on gold, we've moved away from there. We're still keeping some classic ingredients, um, but we try to make shows that feel much more contemporary. So I wouldn't do anything that feels traditional in any way. Um, it, it needs to be, again, something that shines a light on what it's like to be alive right now and comments on the world today is really important for us on both of those channels. So, uh, yeah, so avoiding shows that feel traditional is a, is a big one for Gold. And I probably won't okay. on an awful lot of cancer comedies. I <laughs> don't know why for Gold. Um, people think that's that's what that audience wants. They don't want that. Um, I can tell you that. So we don't do, we won't, we won't do it. We won't be doing a, 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 a comedy about end of life anytime soon, I don't think. Right. Okay. And I believe you currently have two writers' initiatives underway at UKTV. We do. And that's really important for us to do our bit and more than our bit, in fact, to support diverse voices and uh, and to be more inclusive generally in all that we do. The first initiative is our Diverse Writers Initiative, which is a project orientated towards Dave. That's running at the moment and uh, submissions are still open. You can submit work to that initiative up until the 25th uh, of this month. So that's really for any writers who feel their voices aren't currently being heard or seen on British TV. Uh, and the commitment there is that we will filter down all these submissions working with two organisations that I respect and admire a lot, Dandy and Triforce. They're going to work with us to get those submissions down to a manageable shortlist and we will work with them to uh, to find six finalists. So we'll commission six full half-hour scripts from that batch. And the stories can be just whatever the story is that you want to tell. It doesn't have to be funny, doesn't have to be dramatic, can be anywhere in between those two things, but just stories that are personal to you that you would like to get out there. 
we will commission six half-hour scripts and those uh, writers will be mentored and supported and helped through that process over a three-month period. And from those six half-hour scripts, we will commission four uh, individual episodes. So we're going to make a little anthology series to be broadcast on day. So that's a, that's a commitment from us to make at least four of those stories. And obviously we hope that each of those four stories could spin off into their own full series. But that's our starting point for that, a, a diverse anthology series that we're committed to making and broadcasting either late this year or early next year. Uh, and the second initiative is our Female Writers Initiative. Um, and this is really uh, a reaction to uh, an audit we did on our slate at the very start of this year where we realised that as with uh, many other broadcasters, I think we were underperforming in terms of female voices and female writers on our development slate is something that I've been puzzled over. Um, I don't know why that's the case, but it definitely is the case. We've been developing and, and, and commissioning more male writers in the comedy space for a while. So I want to change that. I want to get us much more back to the correct 50-50 split that we you know, all must aspire to. So we're working with uh, Saskia and Emma at uh, Comedy 50-50 on that initiative. The submissions have closed for that, unfortunately. We ran it fairly quickly. I hope it'll be the start of something much, much bigger, much better. But to give you an idea of how much demand there is, if people say, well, there just aren't the female writers out there, we threw the, the, the gauntlet down and said, you know, send us, you know, just a paragraph idea of a story you'd like to write uh, and a five-page writing sample. And we only opened... Uh, the submission window for a relatively short period of time. It was open for, I think, just less than 10 days, and they received over 900 applicants. So if you think there aren't female writers out there who are hungry uh, for work and hungry to be able to practice their craft, then they're completely mistaken. So so that process, um, again, um, we're committed to making, in this case, uh, we're going to commission 10 full treatments uh, from the ideas that, we're, that we receive. And from those treatments, we're going to commission at least three uh, fully uh, full half hour paid scripts so and obviously from those scripts we hope to make some shows and we hope to make some series so you know again i'd like to return to that we'll see, we've got to go through this process once uh, and see you know what each of them return but, but you know it's really exciting for us to be to be working on these on these initiatives and to be hopefully working with some new people and if they go well and if they bear fruit then you know i'd love to think that we could do them every year and do them bigger and better each time very good. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links in the episode description to the uh, initiative that is still open so people can go to that and uh, check that out. And then finally, how do producers contact you? You mentioned earlier on there's a portal, there's somewhere that, uh, that uh, producers can go to and submit their ideas. Can you just tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. So there's several ways. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's an email address dedicated to this, which is submissions at uktv.co.uk. And that is a monitored email. Uh, if you send work in there, it will get read. It doesn't go through junk bin. We do. It, it does take a bit of time sometimes because we get a lot of submissions. But we take those, you know, I think it's incredibly hard to be a writer and if you're trying to be a writer then respect to you and you know we want to do the, the right thing by those people that do send ideas into us so we do try to read everything as quickly as we possibly can so that's one avenue that's open um you know we quite often receive work via an indie or via an agent and that does help um you know just to have that backing so that's a route that i would definitely uh, suggest to writers who are thinking about submitting work to us if you can get representation or if you can come to us via and indeed then it, it really does increase your chances of getting a quick read uh, uh you know significantly so those three you know an indie 
uh, an agent and just through the submissions email are the three main ways to reach us. Okay, fantastic. Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, giving us a really comprehensive look at the uh, at the comedy that you're looking to commission. And we'll have Philippa on the show in a few weeks' time to talk much more about drama commissioning on uh, UK TV. And, uh, and I'll be in touch after this about the... Uh, the female trawler crew comedy that's uh yeah absolutely as i say sorry that the uh Brooklyn, the uh that helen's version of that show has sailed but obviously the comedy version is still yeah. very much up for grabs so i'll look forward to picking up with you later on i promise not to stitch you very up good, like very good and uh obviously i'm going to be developing a costume drama as well uh if that doesn't uh, <laughs> that doesn't work so you can tell philippa to watch out for that one uh, Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to speak to you and uh, all the best for, for this year. Thanks, Justin. Thanks very much for having me. Well, that's about it for our 50th episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues on social media. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories you may have missed, exclusive insight and opinion, including The Secret Producer, our intrepid anonymous exec reporting from the front line of TV production. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in lockdown three in London. We're still in lockdown. So until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.